Well, last Sunday, we studied the resurrection of Jesus. We, we sort of ended uh, walking with Jesus through the Gospel of Mark. And uh, Mark's Gospel, the original ending, kind of leaves it hanging like a cliffhanger. But we do know, if you read on in those verses and you look at the other Gospels, Jesus did uh, be among and teach His disciples for 40 days, gave the Great Commission, ascended to heaven. But we did skip a passage. And some of you noticed that. Are we not going to do Mark 13? We're doing Mark 13 today. I wanted to save this today for a couple of reasons. One, it's Christ the King Sunday. The end of the liturgical church uh, Christian calendar ends, to, ends with this uh, Sunday. Uh, and then next Sunday, it begins again with Advent. So just as we are preparing our hearts to celebrate Advent, preparing for the, the remembrance of the first coming of Christ, so today we focus on the second Advent, waiting for the return of Jesus. And so this passage is known as the Olivet Discourse because Jesus gives it on the Mount of Olives, looking across the Kidron Valley over the city of Jerusalem. And this passage, along with its counterparts in Matthew and Luke, Matthew 24 and 25 and Luke 21, are some of the most difficult passages to understand in the New Testament. So that may have been another reason why I was waiting to put it off a little bit. It needed some further study. Uh, and the difficulty with this passage comes from some of the rich prophetic imagery that Jesus uses, the allusions to Old Testament apocalyptic literature that Jesus makes, that, that for the audience, for the disciples Jesus was speaking to, for the Roman audience Mark was writing to uh, that, that were Jewish, they would have understood some of that, more so than we do. And another thing about biblical prophecy is it can be multi-layered. So a prophecy in the Old Testament could be fulfilled in the Old Testament times, but also be pointing to something that Jesus would later fulfill. There are prophecies in the time of Jesus that are pointing to things that have been fulfilled for us already, but also have a second meaning for things yet to come. And that can be a little difficult to understand sometimes. And for that reason, we really should approach passages like this with a, go a good dose of humility and with a willingness to say that we don't understand everything that some of this remains a mystery for us, and we come away sometimes with more questions than answers. But that's okay, because while we may not know what the future holds, we do know the one who holds the future in his hands, right? I love a quote from G.K. Chesterton. He said, It is only the fool who tries to get the heavens inside his head. The wise man is content to get his head inside the heavens. So that's our goal, to get our head and our hearts aligned with God's, and to understand what His Word has to say. And so, open to Mark 13, buckle up, we're going we're gonna to go through this, and uh, I may talk a little fast, we've got a lot of ground to cover, but first we need to understand the context of, of what Jesus is saying here. Jesus has just left the temple for the last time. He's just had His final confrontation with the religious leaders, and He now gives His final message to the disciples before his crucifixion and resurrection. So we look at Mark 13. Let's look at verses 1 and 2. As he was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, look, what massive stones, what impressive buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another. All will be thrown down. 
Now, the disciples, and maybe this was Peter here, they, they weren't exaggerating. They were truly moved by the, the splendor and the grandeur of the temple in Jerusalem. Herod's temple was known as one of the wonders of the Roman world. And, and even though it was still under construction after 46 years, talk about a long construction project, he'd been working on this thing for 46 years, it was stunning. It was spectacular. It was positioned on Mount Moriah, what we call the Temple Mount today, and it dominated the Jerusalem skyline. Everywhere in Jerusalem, everywhere around it, you could look up and see the temple. Listen to how the Jewish historian Josephus described its appearance. He said, The exterior of the building wanted nothing that could astonish mind or eye. For being covered on all sides with massive plates of gold, the sun was no sooner up than it radiated so fiery a flash the persons straining to look at it were compelled to avert their eyes. It appeared from a distance like a snow-clad mountain, for all that was not overlaid with gold was of purest white. The foundation stones of this massive temple, uh, some of them were as big as 40 feet by 12 feet by 18 feet. When I was in Jerusalem, we got to go in some tunnels because a lot of that that was on the ground level then, you know, it's underground now, and we got to see some of these massive stones that were cut precisely and put in place. So even today in ruins, Herod's temple, this area is, is awe-inspiring, and it is, it is amazing. But Jesus didn't respond that way. Jesus wasn't impressed by this. He didn't respond positively to the disciples' awe at Herod's temple. Instead, Jesus prophesied that this temple would be destroyed. And that would take place in A.D. 70, when the, general, uh, the Roman general Titus came to stop the Jewish rebellion. And as Titus's army raised the temple to the ground along with the city of Jerusalem, all that gold Josephus described melted down into all the cracks and the crevices and the greedy Roman soldiers went in there and they literally pried stone from stone to try to get all that gold. And so they left no stone unturned in the temple. Now, this prophecy was shocking to the disciples. They couldn't believe Jesus said this. They couldn't imagine what kind of cataclysm would take place that could destroy such a magnificent structure. And so they asked Jesus in verses 3 and 4. And, and, and they wait. They, Jesus says this. They walk down through the Kidron Valley. They walk up the Mount of Olives. The disciples are just trying to contemplate this and get their minds around this. And it says in verse 3, while he was sitting on the Mount of Olives across from the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? So Jesus' Olivet Discourse was not spoken in a vacuum. We have to remember this stunning scene that was before them as they looked out across the valley to the temple. We have to remember these two questions the disciples ask as we try to discern what Jesus is saying here and what it means for us today. The disciples wanted to know the times and the signs of when this great destruction would come. And it's typical, Jesus went further than their questions. He went deeper than what they intended. And He used this moment to give them and to give us instructions, not just about what would soon happen in Jerusalem, but about His return. Jesus is not speaking with the heart of a prognosticator or a scholar. He is speaking to them with the heart of a shepherd. 
He's not interested in giving dates, setting details, but encouraging his sheep to watch and wait, to look and live, to be steadfast and faithful until he comes again. And so we'll focus on Jesus' answer to these two questions. When will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they're about to happen? And it's important to remember that as Jesus answers these questions, He answers them both about what is soon to happen in Jerusalem, but also what will happen before He returns at the end of history. And what I hope that we will learn above all as we look through this is that Jesus was far more concerned about preparing His followers to faithfully live in the face of persecution than He was in our trying to figure out the dates and the details of his return. So the first instruction he gives is in verses 5 through 8, and it's this don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. Jesus told them, Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be alarmed. These things must take place, but it is not yet the end. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. At least three times in this passage, Jesus warned his disciples to watch out, be alert. Kind of reminds me how Jesus soon in the Garden of Gethsemane will tell Peter, James, and John to stay awake and, and, and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Here Jesus is telling all of us to stay awake to live alert and aware so we won't be caught napping when He returns. Here in Mark 13, Jesus warned them not to be deceived by future catastrophic events that would lead to the temple's destruction because Jesus understands how we can be. The questions the disciples asked, when will these things happen? What will be the sign? These are the same questions that followers of Jesus have been asking for 2,000 years because every generation looks at the spiritual apostasy, the social upheavals, the natural disasters around them, and wonder, is this the end of the world? That's happened in every generation. We all tend to think that things happening to us are the worst that's ever been, right? It couldn't have been any worse than this. This must mean Jesus' return is imminent. But in these verses, Jesus tells us these are non-signs of His return. In other words, these supposed signs that have worried and deceived people throughout time, He says they're just the groans of a lost and dying world that's suffering the consequences of sin. Things have always been like this. We've always had war and natural disasters. We've always had false teachers and we always will until Christ returns. He tells us that these are the beginnings of birth pains. Now, Paul uses a similar analogy in Romans 8.22. He says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Well, what do some of those birth pains include? Jesus gives us three. The first, he says, false messiahs. He's echoing the Old Testament warnings against false prophets. He says there are going to be some charismatic religious figures. They're going to come and they're going to claim to be Him returned. We've seen people like this in our own time. We think of you know, Jim Jones and down in South America leading his followers to drink the Kool-Aid. We think of David Koresh leading his Branch Davidians to a violent death in Waco, Texas. Most recently, Marshall Applewhite. You might remember his Heaven's Gate cult and how they all committed suicide so their souls could ride the hell-bop comet to heaven. It's tragic. 
when wolves, wolves in sheep's clothing prey upon people who are starving for meaning and thirsting for truth and are tragically led to their deaths. And we pity them, certainly, but we should also be warned by them. Now, you and I may not be in danger of drinking the Kool-Aid, okay? But we are no less in danger of believing the lies of so-called experts and man-made institutions and popular personalities who promise to solve our problems and give our lives a greater meaning. We need to watch out that we're not led astray by the false messiahs of Hollywood or Wall Street or Washington, D.C. or Silicon Valley. False messiahs will always be with us until Christ returns. Secondly, wars and their rumors. You know, since Cain killed Abel, humanity's been at war. Historian Will Durant wrote, and this was many years ago, he said, war is one of the constants of history. In the last 3,421 years of recorded history, only 268 have seen no war. And I doubt that. But even if those years didn't see war, they saw the rumors of wars. They saw hatred and violence and murder. And whenever your life, your family, your country are threatened by war, and I can't imagine living in that kind of a place. I, I think of the poor people in Afghanistan today that, that are suffering uh, the, this uh, return of the Taliban. It must feel like the world is coming to an end. It must feel that way. And Jesus said that we shouldn't be alarmed by this reality. As disturbing as war is, it doesn't mean it's the end. And third, natural disasters. And, and again, just as people feel going through war, if, if you go through a natural disaster, a, an earthquake, a forest fire, a, a flood, a disease, a famine, it must feel like it's the end of days. Between Jesus' ascension and the temple's destruction in AD 70, Laodicea suffered a devastating earthquake. Mount Vesuvius erupted and buried Pompeii. Rome suffered a terrible famine. But obviously that didn't mean the end of the world. We're here. But think how Mark's Roman audience must have felt suffering through some of these things, suffering through immense persecution. Jesus' words here gave them much-needed hope and perspective. And people today try to make us afraid. People today try to get us all worried and upset, whether it's over COVID or climate change. It's the end of the world. And like false messiahs, they claim to have all the answers. We should just trust them for the solutions. But we should not be deceived by such charlatans. These are the beginnings of the birth pains of the new creation, the groanings of a world that are pregnant with hope that Jesus will return to make all things right. Jesus says we should be prepared to endure such cataclysms with hope, holding out our hands in compassion to help those who are suffering and in need, helping them discover the hope and love of God. In Christ Jesus, we should not be deceived by the things that will happen. Secondly, Jesus says, don't be discouraged. Don't be discouraged. Look with me at verse 9. But you be on your guard. They will hand you over to local courts and you'll be flogged in the synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings because of me as a witness to them. And it's necessary that the gospel be preached to all nations. So when they arrest you and hand you over... Don't worry beforehand what you will say, but say whatever is given to you at that time. For it isn't you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, a father his child. Children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. 
You will be hated by everyone because of my name. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. So Jesus warned us to watch out and don't be alarmed. And now he tells us to be on our guard. He doesn't want us to be deceived by what's going to come. But he also doesn't want us to be discouraged about the things that we will personally face for the sake of the gospel. So in addition to wars and false teachers and natural disasters, he tells us there will be public persecution. His followers would face religious persecution at the hands of the Sanhedrin. In each synagogue they go to, they will face persecution. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, you may remember, He warned that others will revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. And Jesus said, you're blessed when that happens. Jesus says they'll also face Political, not just religious, but political persecution. They'll find themselves standing before kings and governors. And again, Jesus is saying, count that as a blessing because it's giving you a greater opportunity to share the gospel. It's expanding your sphere of influence. Paul, you may remember, took advantage of this when he was sent to Caesarea Maritima and he spoke and gave his testimony in front of King Herod Agrippa and in front of the governor Festus. And he longed to go to Rome so he could stand and proclaim the gospel before Caesar himself. It's like what Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 4. He tells us, Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you also may rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. When we live in the way of Christ, when we speak the truth of Jesus, we should expect the world to misunderstand us, to misrepresent our message to try to silence us or smear our character. But rather than consider ourselves victims and to be ashamed for suffering that kind of persecution, Peter says we should rejoice and strategically use those opportunities to boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. So listen, rather than worry over dates and details of when Jesus will return, Jesus says instead we should concern ourselves with preaching the gospel to all nations. That's his point there in verses 10 and 11. He says the gospel is paramount. Preaching the good news to all nations, making disciples, fulfilling the Great Commission, that should be our chief concern. And His Holy Spirit will empower us and equip us and give us the words that we are to say. As Jesus said in John 14, 26, the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have told you. Whether we face religious persecution or political persecution, we should stand boldly, relying on God's Spirit to proclaim the good news. But even worse than those things, I think the most discouraging thing a believer may face, more than that kind of public persecution, is personal hatred. When you stand up for what's true and right, but your friends and family, your co-workers, your loved ones, they don't understand. Maybe they're even against us. That, that's got to be one of the hardest things in the world for a believer to endure. And Jesus said before He told us that He didn't come to bring peace but a sword, that houses would be divided over Him, and that we would have to be willing to love and serve and follow Him even if that meant turning our backs on our families because in reality, they've already turned their backs on us and on Him. Jesus said, you've got to love me 
so much it's almost as if you hate your family or you cannot follow me. And because all of this is difficult, Jesus gives us the promise that in the face of that kind of persecution and hatred, if we stand firm, we will be saved in verse 13. Now, Jesus here isn't preaching a works-based salvation. He's not trying to say that we can lose our salvation. We can understand what he says here better when we look at 1 John 2.19. John is writing to some believers, and and there have been some among their church that have left. They've abandoned the faith. They've, They've become apostate. And John says this, They went out from us, but they did not belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. However, they went out so that it might be made clear that none of them belong to us. In other words, genuine faith is revealed through the fire. Genuine faith is proved through the tests and the trials that we endure. Kent Hughes says, true believers keep on going through thick and thin. They don't stop and give up. Or as one person illustrated, hammering hardened steel but crushes putty. So those whose faith in Jesus is genuine will not give up that faith for any reason, not for public persecution and humiliation, not even for the personal hatred and misunderstanding of family and friends. True believers in Jesus will endure to the end. So we should not be discouraged. When we face hardship, and listen, we are already facing hardship, but it pales in comparison to what will come. Don't be discouraged. Don't be deceived. And third, Jesus tells us, don't be distracted. Now, this passage right here is, is the real... This is the hard part right here. This, this is the part that's difficult. This is the part people really start to disagree uh, here beginning in verse 14. When you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be... And I love this part. Let the reader understand. I'm like, Mark, I'm trying. I, I really am trying. I'm trying to understand. Then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. A man on the housetop must not come down or go in or get anything out of his house. And a man in the field must not go back to get his coat. Woe to pregnant women and nursing mothers in those days. Pray it won't happen in winter. For those will be days of tribulation, the kind that hasn't been from the beginning of creation until now and never will be again. If the Lord had not cut those days short, no one would be saved. But He cut those days short for the sake of the elect whom He chose. Then, if anyone tells you, see, here is the Messiah, see, there, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will arise and will perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. And you must watch. I have told you everything in advance. Now, I believe that part of the difficulty here is Jesus, once again, is both talking about what is soon to happen in the destruction of the temple. He's describing those events. But he's also using that to point out forward to an even worse time of tribulation at the end of time before His return. He's talking about both. What He is saying is applicable to the disciples right then, but it's also applicable to us today. But the emphasis, remember the situation here. Jesus said that the temple would be destroyed, no stone would be left on another, and the disciples said, Lord, when will that happen? How will we know it's about to happen? Remember that context. So even though Jesus is using this to also point ahead to His return, I think in these verses His main emphasis is on what's going to happen when Jerusalem falls in A.D. 70. For example, the phrase, the abomination of desolation, 
That comes from the prophetic sections of Daniel. You can read about that and, and those verses are in your notes there. And it's a reference to some event that, that happens in the temple that is so heinous that it has to be abandoned, that, that you can no longer worship there. You can no longer make sacrifices and offerings to God there. Think about it. Abomination of desolation. Abomination means it's an offense to God's holiness. Desolation means that the temple has been abandoned by God's glory. If you go back and you read at the dedication of Solomon's temple, this beautiful temple that Solomon built for the Lord, God's glory comes in this fire and smoke and inhabits the Holy of Holies. But God warns the people. He says, someday you're going to rebel against me, you're going to become idolatrous, and I will leave this temple. My glory will depart and it will be destroyed. And that happened when the Babylonians took Jerusalem and Nebuchadnezzar had the temple destroyed. Ezekiel was one of those taken into captivity in Babylon. Ezekiel had a vision where he saw God's glory depart from the temple. And the reason that he abandoned the temple was because it had been so desecrated. The abominations committed there by the kings of Judah, idolatry, child sacrifice, temple prostitution, horrible things. Well, Daniel's vision of a future abomination of desolation was fulfilled when the Seleucid king Antiochus IV, Antiochus Epiphanes, conquered Jerusalem. And he tried to... Uh, you know, this is in the wake of Alexander the Great's death and his kingdom was divided up into these different kingdoms and Antiochus Epiphanes was the king of the Seleucid Empire. He went in to Jerusalem. He wanted to Hellenize the, the Jewish people. He wanted to make them like Greeks. And so he forbid all of the Jewish customs and he went into the temple and he sacrificed pigs on the altar, desecrating the temple. In the, uh, apocalypt in the uh, apocryphal book of 1 Maccabees, it records how on the 15th day of Kislev, in the 145th year, they erected a desolating sacrilege upon the altar of burnt offering. And scholars think that was either a statue of Zeus or even an image of Antiochus himself. To add further insult to injury, he set up a brothel in the inner courts of the temple. And this desecration led to the Jews abandoning this second temple that had been built when they returned from exile. And it remained abandoned until the Maccabean War and they regained control. So when Jesus mentions this, the disciples know exactly what he's talking about. They think of Daniel. They think of Antiochus Epiphanes. They think of the Maccabean Revolution. And Jesus is saying that, yes, just as that happened in the past, it's going to happen again. God's glory will depart from Jerusalem. The temple will be abandoned and utterly destroyed. Not because they committed idolatry or child sacrifice, but because they rejected God Himself. They rejected Jesus Christ, His Son. The temple veil was torn in two. God's glory departed. That temple was destroyed and it was never rebuilt. To this day, that temple does not stand rebuilt. And all that's left of it is the retaining wall that Herod built for the temple to go on top of it. It's the retaining wall. The western wall that Jews revere and pray out, it's a retaining wall. The temple used to be nearby. And that temple mount continues to be desecrated as Muslims' Dome of the Rock and their mosque is up there and they live in absolute rejection and denial of the God of the Bible. But I believe that there is still an ultimate fulfillment of the abomination of desolation still before us. Jesus used 
this coming calamity for Jerusalem to illuminate an even greater tribulation that will come at the end of time. Paul talks about this in 2 Thessalonians 2 as he describes the Antichrist as the man of lawlessness. And he says in in 2 Thessalonians 2.4, he opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he sits in God's temple proclaiming that he himself is God. The Antichrist, whoever he may be someday, will himself set himself up in the temple as an object of worship. I believe this supports the idea that the abomination of desolation that has happened before, it happened in the time of the Babylonians, it happened in the time of Antiochus Epiphanes, it happened in A.D. 70 when Jerusalem was destroyed, it will happen once again before Christ returns. But Jesus' immediate concern here is now a historical fact for us, the fall of Jerusalem. The Romans' campaign to squash the Jewish rebellion was absolutely brutal. As Jesus said, though, if the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would be saved. Josephus, once again, gives us a graphic description of those events. He talks about famished women thronging the roofs with their infants in their arms, corpses of the elderly lay in the street where they died. People literally threw bodies over the wall of Jerusalem to just lay there and be ravaged by the animals. Starvation was so rampant. Children, he said, roamed like phantoms through the marketplaces and collapsed wherever their doom overtook them. Because they were so weak with starvation, they were literally unable to weep or wail. And their silence was only broken by the laughter of the thieves robbing the bodies. Those were awful events. I can't even imagine that level of death and destruction and misery. And, and it's just it's awful. Truly, truly traumatic. Cataclysmic. But as awful as those events are, boy, it sure seems like Jesus is using hyperbole in verse 19. He says, Those will be days of tribulation, the kind that hasn't been from the beginning of creation until now or never will again. Now, as awful as that must have been, is Jesus just using hyperbole here? Maybe. Jesus often did that. Like he talked about a camel going through the eye of the needle. Jesus sometimes exaggerated to make a point. But I think, Again, Jesus is using this tragedy in Jerusalem to point to even a worse one that will come in the distant future. But listen, whether we're talking about A.D. 70 or time yet to come, the point Jesus is making here is that God will remember His people with mercy. He will relent. He will cut short. He will will withhold the full pouring out of His wrath to spare His people from destruction. It's like the Passover in Egypt. Those of us who are under the blood of the Lamb will be spared whatever calamity may come. And Jesus ends this section the way He began His discourse, reiterating they must not be deceived by false messiahs who will just proliferate more and more until Christ returns. But we should not be distracted by these details. About is Jesus talking about Jerusalem or the end of time? Is Jesus going to return today or tomorrow? What's going to be the clues we're going to know about this? Jesus says, don't be distracted by those things. Those things aren't what matter the most. And finally, the final instruction, Jesus says, don't despair. after After reading that passage, we need that word, don't we? Don't despair. Yes, times will be bad. Don't despair. Look what he says in verse 24 through 27. In those days... And this is how we know that Jesus is also looking forward, not just to 
A.D. 70. He's looking forward. In those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not shed its light. The stars will be falling from the sky and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. He will send out the angels and gather His elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. So while earthquakes may not signify the end is near, heavenquakes do. That's what Jesus described. He's describing heavenquakes. In other words, Jesus is saying natural disasters aren't the things to worry about. It's the unnatural disasters. The unnatural disasters are the true signs of His return. When the sun and the moon no longer shine their light. When the sky quakes and stars fall. Now, I don't know exactly what that means. I don't know if Jesus, again, is being poetic or literal. But whatever that day will be like, it will be terrifying. And there will be no mistake, it is the work of God. But out of that cosmic confusion, Christ will come in the clouds of glory. His light will shine through that unnatural darkness and He will bring ultimate and lasting peace and order into the chaos left by sin. Daniel 7 describes that day. He says, I continued watching in the night visions and suddenly one like a son of man was coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was escorted before Him. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and His kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. Hallelujah. Amen. Even amidst this disturbing imagery, there is hope. There's hope. Because Jesus' main concern when He returns isn't judgment. It's the gathering of His saints from the four corners of the world and reuniting them with those who preceded us in death as Paul read to us this morning from our New Testament reading. One commentator said this about verse 27 where he talks about sending out the angels and gathering His elect from the four winds. They said His angels are dispersed not as grim reapers but as joyous reapers to the harvest as He gathers His church from every nook and cranny of the world. It's a day of rejoicing. It's a day of hallelujahs. Yes, when Jesus returns, He will judge the living and the dead, but He'll also put an end to death and sin forever. He will once and for all defeat Satan. Creation will be made new and all things will be put right and He shall reign forever and ever and ever. And Jesus concludes, with two parables that are meant to both give us a warning and a hope and further instruction. Let's look at these last two parables that Jesus ends His discourse with. The first is the parable of the fig tree in verse 28. Learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its branches become tender and sprouts leaves, you know that summer is near. In the same way, when you see these things happening, recognize that He is near at the door. Truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Now this is the second time in a few days Jesus has used a fig tree to make a spiritual point. Remember, he cursed the unfruitful fig tree as a symbol of the unfruitfulness of the Jewish people and of the temple. Well, now he's turned it from a negative to a positive illustration. He uses it to illustrate expectation and anticipation of what is to come, of God's perfect timing. 
Just as a farmer would watch the signs of the weather to know when the harvest would come, he says the disciples should watch for the growing signs of Jerusalem's demise and the church being scattered throughout the Roman world. But again, there's a deeper truth here. Jesus isn't just talking to them about watching for the signs of the fall of Jerusalem. He's talking to us today as well. And He doesn't want us to despair about the things that will come. We should remember Jesus' promise that He will be with us whenever we face persecution or hatred. The promise that His Holy Spirit will embolden, empower, and equip us. And we should rest in the promise that Jesus is coming back for us, for His church. These are sure and certain promises. His Word will not pass away. His Word is fruitful. It will go out and accomplish everything that it is sent to accomplish. We can trust God. He will make good on His promises. The fig tree is a word of hope. It's a word of expectation. The second illustration here is the doorkeeper. Look at verse 32. He says, Concerning that day or hour... No one knows, neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Watch, be alert, for you don't know when the time is coming. It's like a man on a journey who left his house, gave authority to his servants, gave each one his work, and commanded the doorkeeper to be alert. Therefore, be alert, since you don't know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening or at midnight, the crowing of the rooster, or early in the morning. Otherwise, when he comes suddenly, he might find you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to everyone, be alert. Keep watch. Stay awake. Pay attention. We should be like the doorkeeper who's eagerly waiting and watching for his master's return because we don't know the day or the hour he will come back. And we don't want our master finding us asleep at the post. Listen, we live in the second advent. Just as Israel longed and waited for and watched for the coming of the Messiah, so we are waiting and longing for and watching for His return. And we should be busy readying the Master's estate for when He comes. And how do we do that? By fulfilling the Great Commission, by going into all the world and proclaiming the Gospel and baptizing and making disciples. Jesus gave that Great Commission after His resurrection, and He ascended into heaven. And as He did, the disciples stood there watching as Jesus disappeared. And they just stood there and they watched. And they are just stargazing, cloud gazing. And two angels appear. And they say in Acts 1.11, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come in the same way that you have seen Him go. And what did they do then? They stopped gazing into the sky. And they went into Jerusalem. They prayed and waited for the Holy Spirit. And in the Spirit's power, they preached the gospel. The church was born. The gospel spread around the world. Listen, our concern shouldn't be staring at clouds, speculating about when Jesus is going to come back. Our concern should be to go into the world and proclaim the gospel and make disciples before He does. Because yes, Jesus could come back today, tomorrow, next year, that we should live and look as if He's coming back today. He could come back at any moment. And so we should be awake and alert and carrying out the will of God, worshiping together, breaking bread together, serving one another, and proclaiming the gospel in the world. Jesus said even, at least while He was on the earth, even He didn't know the day or the hour of His return. Even the angels today still don't know. So are we so arrogant to think that we could figure it out? 
But listen, when His return is imminent, when He stands at the door, we'll know it. We'll know it. But by then it'll be too late. It'll be too late to share Jesus with that lost co-worker or friend. It'll be too late to go and forgive that person you've held a grudge with for years. It'll be too late for you to give your life to Jesus Christ and be saved. That moment it's too late. And that's why Jesus ends this discourse the way He began, telling us not to worry about dates and details, trying to figure out when He's going to return is futile. Instead, we should look for His return at any moment and live like it could be today. That's what we must do. The return of Jesus should not be a cause of discouragement or despair. We shouldn't be deceived by false teachers who try to tell us that they know when it's going to come. If you just buy their book, they'll tell you when it's going to come. We shouldn't be distracted by that kind of speculation. Let us wait and watch. Let us be awake and alert. Let us be busy about the Lord's work. Work while it's still day because the night is coming when no one can work. We need to work today to share the gospel with people. We need today to make sure that we are living in obedience to God. Jesus said today is the day of salvation. Call upon the Lord while He is near. If you've not given your heart and life to Jesus Christ, listen, I don't know if Christ is coming back today, but I also don't know if you might be going to stand before His judgment throne today. None of us are promised tomorrow. Are you right with God? Do you know that you know that Jesus is your Lord and Savior? If not, I beg of you to come and settle it today before you leave. Brothers and sisters, are you obeying God's call on your life? Are you sharing the gospel? Are you making disciples? Are you inviting people to come to church and to Sunday school? Are you out there serving the needy in the name of Christ? Are you putting your gifts and talents to work for Him? Work while it's day. The night is coming. Christ is going to return. And all that work will be complete. Will you have done your part to the glory of God? I invite you to come and use this altar. Come and pray with me. Make sure that you're ready for when the Master comes. It could be today. It could be tomorrow. Only the Father knows. Would you stand and pray with me? Lord, it's so natural of us as humans to try to figure out patterns of things that we see and make sense of the world. And it's, it's so human of us to want to know when things are going to happen. We want to know the details. We don't want to be left in the dark. But God, you've only given us what you know we need to know. And we must trust you with the rest. And I pray, Father, you would help us to truly live every day to the fullest. To not take any day for granted. Because we don't know the day or the hour. When either you return or we die, but we find ourselves standing before your throne. So God, may we be responsible and obedient to your call on our lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.